If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can find um, Pew Bibles there on the rows. That's page 942 of the Pew Bibles. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, perhaps you didn't grow up in church, you're not familiar with it. When I say chapter 2, that's the big number. And then when I say verse 13, that's the little number. So big 2, little 13. We're in John chapter 2, beginning verse 13 this morning. All right, I'm curious. This is a safe space. I want to know who used to own and wear a Jesus is my homeboy shirt. <laughs> Any, anybody? Well, okay. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes, okay, some nods. I know some of you probably did. You're, you're shamed. You don't feel zeal for it anymore. If you're not familiar with the shirt, yeah, there's a depiction of Jesus on it. He's got his palms open. He's kind of yoked for whatever reason. And it says, Jesus is my homeboy. There's kind of, a, there's an interesting story behind it. The guy who designed the shirt was, he was in South Central LA. He was actually being uh, jumped by a gang. And he's on the ground. One guy has a gun to his head. Someone else is yelling, kill him. And the guy, Van Zan, he's thinking, what can I say to kind of um, get them to stop? And he yells, Jesus is my homeboy. No joke. And he says, and he can be your homeboy too. And they run away. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> if they haven't seen you, try it out. And then, so he was so moved by this, he wanted to design a shirt basically to inspire others. He said he wanted a Jesus that had no race, color, or creed. Okay, he wanted, in his words, the image to be neutral so that anybody could identify with it. Right, it's a Jesus. The Jesus is not offensive, which is the point. He has no statement of faith, no church covenant. He makes no demands. He's your homeboy, right? He's your friend. He's suited to your tastes and your likings. Whereas my Jesus, my homeboy, might be different. You see, he's really the Jesus of your making, the Jesus as you want him to be. Now, the reality is we all favor different aspects of Christ. Now, none of us, I think, would go as far as to say Jesus is my homeboy, None of us, worse yet, would say we prefer praying to little baby Jesus or something silly, right? If we believe upon the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus of history, he is the object of our faith. He is the Christ of our faith. And yet, none of us have a perfect picture of Christ in our minds. We're fallen, we're finite. The Holy Spirit, through Holy Scripture, confronts us and seeks to conform our image, our picture of Christ, to the image that we have in the Bible, which is the image of reality, the true Jesus. And if we were honest, we would say we prefer different aspects or pictures of Jesus, even as we see him in the Gospels. So you can think about it. If you're turning to the book of John, to some of your favorite scenes where you would turn to, some of you might turn to the beginning of John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, right? Sign one, keeps the party going, kind of cool. You probably would skip today's text. You might go to John chapter 3, where Jesus unfolds the mysteries of God to one of Israel's teachers, explaining the movement of the Spirit, how the Son of Man will be lifted up because God loves the world. You might turn to John chapter 4, beautiful text where Jesus is with the Samaritan woman, right, with this lowest of the low. Unless... You're a weirdo. You're probably not going to John chapter 2, verse 13. <laughs> You're probably not going to the cleansing of the temple. 
And I think if we're being honest, today's text probably makes most of us uncomfortable. We would soon dispel the image of a whip-wielding Christ. If we were honest, we would say we think it's unbecoming of the God-man. It may conjure up images for us of abusive parents. It may conjure up images of abuses in our country's history. Even if we understand the account correctly, it makes us uncomfortable because it confronts us. We see that God, even in the worship gathering, stands in judgment over us. It means that false worship angers God. It means that God has a right to dictate how we approach him and not the other way around. You see, the reality is Jesus is not ours to make or to edit like a graphic tee. You can't have the water turning into wine Jesus or the Jesus at the well apart from the whip-wielding Christ. John has placed these two accounts, ostensibly contrasting accounts side by side quite intentionally. And so at the wedding in Cana, Jesus is involved in the common. He's at a wedding, a rural wedding in the middle of nowhere with people you don't even know. And yet, of course, he does something that's uh, more than ordinary. By speaking a word, he turns water into wine. He does what only God can do, taking a type of nothingness and making it into something. He shows us that the Um, The age of the Messiah has dawned. The new creation is here with him. Jesus gives this sign at this wedding in the middle of nowhere, even as he is involved in the common. We come here at the temple. Jesus' concern is not the common, but the holy, the purity of worship. It's actually the common, we'll see, that's profaning the holy. And Jesus is going to judge and purify with righteous indignation. And there at the temple... At the time of Passover, when everyone's gathered, when you would expect him to do a sign, he does not. He offers instead only a riddle. You see, Jesus at the wedding in Cana, I think he puts us at ease. He's kind of the Jesus we expect and we like. Jesus at the temple makes us uncomfortable. The scene reminds us that we don't stand in judgment over Christ. He's not the subject of our thought experiments. We find that the opposite is true. When we think about him, when we worship him, when we approach him in worship, he stands in judgment over us. You see, the Gospels are giving us the whole Christ, both the man at the wedding and the God in the temple. They seek to give us the whole Jesus, and he's not ours to edit. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, if you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, beginning in 13. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. 
and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Amen. You can be seated. Two simple observations from the text today, and they both deal with worship. Worship being basically evaluation that we make about God. It's what we're saying about what God is worth. One, God cares about how we worship. And second, God cares where we worship. Okay, so two points or observations this morning. God cares how we worship. And God cares where we worship. First, God cares how we worship. We begin in verse 13. If you look at the text, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been reading through the book of John, especially if you're familiar with the synoptics, you'll notice that John is the most eager of uh, the writers of the epistles to demonstrate that Jesus, like a good Jew, observed the festivals. The synoptics only record, the synoptics only record one Passover. John gives us three. Okay, and the synoptics are at the end of Jesus' life. In uh, John, we have one here at the very beginning. Now, there's potentially a kind of issue or um, there's potentially an issue here, and it's worth commenting on. So if you remember from Pastor Joshua preaching through Mark, there's a temple cleansing that Mark has at the very end of his gospel or towards the end of his gospel. And this is the case for all the synoptic gospels. They have this uh, temple cleansing event. It's at the end, and it's kind of the last straw. Jesus cleanses the temple. He says the house of prayer has been turned into a den of robbers. And then that's when they begin plotting to kill him especially. They're like, this is it. It's time that we put an end to him. Now John, on the other hand, he places Jesus cleansing the temple toward the beginning of his gospel and then presumably toward the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so how do we reconcile this? There's a couple different ways that you could think about it. Some people and most modern theologians argue that there's just one. It's the one that took place at the end of the synoptics and John uh, moved it to the very beginning for kind of theological or thematic reasons. And that's possible uh, this might sound unusual to us, but the Gospels, they're not strictly chronological. They're basically chronological, um, but they tend to arrange them in thematic or theological ways. We're, not, we're not used to that in the West. We probably don't like that. We like strict chronology. Um, they weren't operating with the same assumptions. And so that's possible. The more traditional understanding from Augustine to Calvin, even some solid modern scholars, Leon Morris, D.A. Carson, they argue for two. So there's one at the very beginning of Jesus' mystery, this is what we see, and then there's another one at the very end. John happens not to record it, the synoptics don't record the first one. Um, it's not incredibly important, okay? Just keep that in mind. And we can't know with certainty. You might keep that in mind as well. I think we're safe to, um, when I don't know, I like going with history. Okay, if I'm going to be wrong, I'll be wrong with Augustine, Calvin, and Carson. <laughs> this kind of good company to be in. And so we're going to say we think this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, if that's not the case, it's okay. John had moved it up here for theological reasons. We see that it's Passover. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, verse 14. 
In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found money changers sitting there. So Jesus finds two things, notice. He finds people selling animals, and he finds a currency exchange. So he walks into the outer courtyard of the temple. He sees basically a market and a bank. Now what's going on here? It's Passover. You'll recall Passover. It's the celebration of God bringing Israel up out of Egypt, up out of bondage in slavery. And part of the means by which God did this is through 10 plagues. The Passover coincides with the 10th plague, whereby God says that he would visit Egypt in an act of judgment. He would strike down the firstborn of every household because of their guilt, except for the houses who were covered in the blood of a goat or lamb, their doorpost. And so God spared those because there was a sacrifice in their place. And so every year, they would commemorate this by celebrating the Passover. Every well-abled Jew was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So people aren't just coming from nearby, you know, Cana or Israel. Jews would come in from all over the Roman Empire. Okay, so if you're traveling, I think whether you're traveling 10 miles or 100 miles, you don't want to take your oxen with you or your sheep with you, right? As a parent of four young kids, I can tell you, every time we take a road trip, it is a circus enough. (laughs) Like, I've got my own oxen, sheep, goat, baby Jane is the dove. Like, we'll buy, the, we'll buy the other animals when we get there. And so some savvy businessmen, they've set up a market, but don't miss this, they're providing a necessary good. Okay, people need animals to sacrifice. The good in and of itself is helpful. Now the money changers are there because there's a temple tax, and the temple only accept, would accept one type of currency. It was a high purity silver coin, and it was void of any idolatrous images on it. So you're not going to find the picture of Caesar on it, bringing it into the temple of God. And so as you're coming from wherever, you know, you're bringing your whatever coinage it is, there you're making the exchange. We get this. You know, if you're traveling to India, like you're, you're probably not ro- rolling up to your local First Tennessee bank and asking for rupees. You're going to do that when you get to the Delhi airport. And so again, they, the money changers, like the market with the animals, they're offering a necessary even a necessary good for the people. The people need to pay the temple tax. Okay, so Jesus walks in the temple. He sees a market. He sees a bank. Verse 15, look at the text. After making a whip out of cords, okay, things escalate quickly. He drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. Now, The text doesn't tell us, but I think we can assume that Jesus is angry. (laughs) Yeah, last time I was flipping tables, I was angry. Okay. (laughs) Jesus is angry, but it's not a sin, and this is important for us to grasp, it's not a sin in and of itself to be angry. Okay, it's a sin to sin in anger. Jesus is angry because of sin, and it's the sin of disordered worship. He responds by dealing with the sin, So Jesus is experiencing not sinful anger, but righteous anger. It is the right response to Israel's sin. It would have been sinful, in fact, for Jesus to respond with a kind of indifference because of who he is. Jesus is responding in a way that's fitting given given the gravity of Israel's sin. It's fitting given 
Israel's knowledge. They're not ignorant. God has clearly, in his law, prescribed for them what worship ought to and ought to not look like, down to the furniture in the temple. So it's fitting given the sin, given Israel's knowledge, and it's a fitting response given who Jesus is. This is righteous anger, okay? This is not what you do on 240 when someone cuts you off and you get upset. This would be closer to you finding someone assaulting your child, how you would feel and respond. And even so, Jesus' response is measured. He doesn't lose control. This is a measured response by Christ. It's fitting given Israel's particular sin. They should have known better about the error that they were making. Now, what is the error? Verse 16. This is Jesus. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. More literally, stop turning my father's house into a business house. You see, Jesus is not angry that the sheep are being sold. He's not angry that the currency is being exchanged. Done properly in the right setting, those things facilitate Israel's worship. In fact, those things used to happen on the other side of the Kidron Valley, but they've slowly crept their way into the temple. So Jesus is not angry that those things are happening, but where those things are happening. Jesus cares about how we worship because how we worship determines who we worship. The temple, especially at Passover, it ought to have been a place of worship, of humility, of gratitude, of reverence, of awe, of sorrow over our own sin. Jesus should have been hearing prayer and scripture. He should have been hearing repentance and pardon. He should have then been hearing rejoicing. Instead, he hears the clanging of coins and the bartering over animals. I suspect, of course, that Israel's religious leaders have set it up in such a way that they are getting a cut of the money too. Where there should have been fear and awe of the glory of God, there is greed. You see, the temple has been desecrated the place of worship has been turned into a place of business. This is not the proper response as you're standing in the presence of God. What do you think it says about what they think about God? Think about Isaiah. He had but a vision that he was in the temple before the Lord and he was undone. He was crying out, woe is me, I am undone. He wasn't wondering how he could profit off of God. He was wondering how he would survive. Not wondering how he would make money, but how he would receive mercy. You see, Christ's actions are a rebuke on an entire system that has been perverted by greed. In addition, it is this kind of casual arrogance that says, I can approach God as I see fit. Now, False teachers throughout the church have sought to exploit the gospel of Jesus Christ for gain. The New Testament authors warn us about this. Peter tells us, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, and verse 1, he tells us there will be false prophets or false teachers. In verse 3, he tells us they will be greedy for gain. And we see this in the history of the church. You might know the name John Tetzel. He sold indulgences in the 15th century on behalf of the Pope. He was a gifted preacher. He had a really catchy phrase. He said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. 
okay? As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It would be this abuse of selling indulgences that would set Martin Luther off, okay, on his journey toward reformation. He's basically saying, if you give us your money, we'll help your loved ones get out of purgatory, okay? He was wrong on at least two counts. Now, more recently, prosperity gospel preachers, they seem to have unabashedly turned the house of God into a house of business, Their gospel is built upon the promise of wealth. You probably know the name Kenneth Copeland. Very famous. He's he's older now, but famous prosperity gospel preacher. He once said, you must realize that it is God's will for you to prosper. By which he means being healthy and wealthy. He says, this is available to you, and frankly, it would be stupid of you not to partake of it. Creflo Dollar, likewise, once said, the word of God is your highway to the world of wealth. If you take the seed of God's word and put it in your heart, then wealth and riches will be in your house. Seek out the people who are sent with the message of prosperity to break the poverty chain. Now, it's unlikely we'll ever be tempted to go full prosperity gospel, right? You never go full prosperity gospel. I think we'll be tempted to turn the house of worship, that is a church for us, into a place of business in other ways. For us, it will be more subtle. It will seem innocuous. It will be less explicitly about greed, more about running the church as a business, right? We will um, veil it under the mission of God. Remember, the Jews, they needed a market. They needed a money table. It would have been easy, easy for Israel's religious leaders to justify their actions. This doesn't hinder worship. It's facilitating worship. We're making it easy for people. And yet they are going against what they know to be true of God's word. You see, oftentimes godlessness masks itself in godliness. Paul tells us, they false teachers, they have the form of godliness, but they deny its power. I think for us, we will be tempted to profane the sacred and we'll justify it through pragmatism. Okay, think about it. I might think as a pastor... Yeah, but if I preach this text as I know, as I believe it to be saying, I might offend that wealthy family. And we really need their money to stay afloat as church, which we need so that the gospel can go forth. If I skip this offensive text or if I preach what people want to hear, we'll attract more people. We'll grow numerically in more ways than one, if you know what I mean. If we run ourselves like a business, if we franchise ourselves out, we'll have a bigger footprint. We'll reach more people. You see, the temptation for us, especially in America, is going to be to run ourselves like a business. Now, I'm not saying to be clear that we can't learn things from people in the business world. God, by his common grace, we can learn truth from anywhere. But what we need to understand is that a business and a church are fundamentally different. We gather to serve and to worship God. A good business is seeking to make money, and it gets there by means of giving people what they want. One of the fathers of the modern church growth movement, before he planted what is now a huge church in Chicago, he sent out a questionnaire, okay, a survey to all the neighboring neighborhoods, so thousands, thousands and thousands of homes. He sent out a survey to figure out what kind of church they wanted. So you could just check on there, you know, 
I want loud music, I want short sermons, I want this for my kids, I want these kind of groups, I don't want this kind of thing. They wanted to know exactly what the people wanted and that's what they were gonna give them. He famously or infamously outside of his office, there hung a sign that said, the customer is king. Okay, this is how I think many churches in America operate, whether or not they would verbalize the customer is king. Brothers and sisters, in the church, Christ is king. We are but the custodians. The church is not a business. Now, to be clear again, I'm not saying having a large church or marketing yourself is always or is even mostly driven about money. I'm saying that we, NBC, need to be cautious about the decisions that we make, realizing that this is not a business not even close. All that we do ought to be driven by our desire to see God worshiped both here and among the nations, and we take our cues from God's word. There ought to be, I think, even a healthy degree of suspicion among us, the members, if all of the decisions we make increase our bottom line. Because we're sinful, right? It's easy to justify the decisions that we make under a kind of veil of pragmatism. Again, not saying it's simple to be big or to have a lot of money, but what I want us to see is that it's better to be faithful and small and poor than to manipulate worship for gain. We must be on guard against distorted worship, especially as it's motivated by greed, but it's not just that, it's broader than that, and that's what's going on with Israel. There is this arrogance that thinks we can determine how we approach God and not the other way around. Jesus, on the other hand, was zealous for the house of the Lord. We see this in verse 17. John writes, And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, John does this thing a lot, which is helpful. He tends to give us commentary, a kind of, we'll call it breaking down the fourth gospel wall. He's telling us that they remembered. Now, this is probably not what's going on. I promise you, they have no idea what's happening. <laughs> they're, they're as confused as everyone else. This is probably after the resurrection, after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see in John chapter 14, I think it's verse 26, Jesus says that uh, when they receive the Spirit, he will remind them of the truths that he said or the things that he said and he'll guide them into truth. The Holy Spirit helps him interpret, we'll see this in a bit, both Scripture and what Jesus has said, his words. And so after the fact, once they've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they remembered either as they're thinking about this account or probably as they're reading their Bibles. They're reading Psalm 69, where David writes, zeal for your house has consumed me. They realized it was true for David. It was more aptly applied to Christ. It was prophetic. It was prophetic. Zeal for your house will consume me. In Psalm 69, David was saying that zeal for the house of the Lord has consumed him, that has devoured him or destroyed him. He was so zealous for God's worship that it led to reproach, okay, from his enemies, his friends even. People thought he was crazy because he was so consumed with zeal for the house of God. But John renders it here, future tense, which is fitting for prophecy. Jesus is so zealous for the house of God that he will be consumed. He will be destroyed because of it. Again, second temple cleansing as we see in the synoptics. He'll do it one more time. It'll be the last straw the religious leaders will say it's time to kill him. Jesus, zealous for the, house of the God, for the house of God, will lead to his destruction, and he knows it. I promise you, he knows it. Jesus knew, but he was more concerned about zeal for God's worship. 
You see, Jesus cares not just that God is worshipped, but how. Because, this is important for us to grasp, how is influenced by who we worship. Think about it. If you worship money, you'll turn the temple into a business. If you worship yourself, all the songs we sing will be about us. All the sermons will cater to our needs. Fill in the blanks here. If you worship entertainment, church will look like what? If you worship anonymity, you don't want people knowing what's going on in your life, church will look like what? If you worship your children, church will look like what? You see, God cares about how he is approached because of who he is. He is the holy God over Israel. C.S. Lewis tried to capture this, and I think does a good job, in the Chronicles of Narnia. The Christ figure, Aslan, he's a lion, but he's not just a lion. Lewis is eager over and over to tell us that he's not tamed. He's a wild lion. Now, that might sound crude to our ears, but what Lewis is wanting us to see is that God is not ours to domesticate. Right? Just as there are right and wrong ways to approach a lion, there are right and wrong ways to approach God. We went to the zoo yesterday, and I was reminded even then that there are signs everywhere telling you what to and not to do. There are cages separating you and the animals. And this is not to hamper your joy. It's to protect your joy. You will have more fun looking at the lion than being eaten by one. I promise you. So is the case with God. He cares about how he is worshipped. Right? We're not talking about a dumb or deaf idol. He cares about how he is worshipped because of who he is. The first two of the Ten Commandments make this clear. We're talking about one God. He doesn't want us making him into an idol, into something of our imagination that we can create with our hands. Israel's entire system was set up to facilitate their proper worship of God as it was fitting under the old covenant. This idea that God cares about how he is worshiped is pervasive throughout scripture. Just a case study, Leviticus chapter 10, verses one through three. Aaron, kind of first high priest in Israel's history, His two sons, they offer what the text calls strange fire. Now, it's not clear what that means, but they were trying to worship God or a distortion of God in a way that was not sanctioned, and God killed them. They, above anyone else, they would have known how they were and were not to approach God, and yet they treated him as though he was their peer, some kind of plaything, as though he were not holy or just. Yes, the old covenant has been fulfilled, it's been abrogated, but the holiness of God has not. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says he seems to be saying that some in Corinth had died because they so desecrated the Lord's Supper. They were so casual and arrogant about the way that they were partaking in the meal, which has been outlined for us. You see, it's not just that we worship, but how, because how determines who If that upsets you, it's probably because you're worshiping a distortion of God, one who looks more like you and less like the God of the Bible, one who's subject to your rules, not the other way around. Our aim in the worship service should be to do those things and only those things that God has called us to do and to do so with hearts of joy and reverence. This is why our goal in the service, we have a pretty plain service, We try to read the word, to preach the word, we sing the word, we 
hear the word and we see the word. We say in the ordinances. We want to do as God has commanded, nothing more, nothing less. And this is important. That doesn't constrain us. It frees us. It frees us up to worship God as he has instructed us. It frees us up from having to be creative, which can be quite dangerous because we don't want to unwittingly um, create a different version of God. It also protects all the consciences of the members because we're not going to make you do something that is not in the Bible of God while you're here. Like Christ and David before him, we should burn with zeal for the house of the Lord, not for something that looks like God but is actually different. You see, the worship of God is quite unnatural for sinners. This is why we need God's word to instruct us, to guide us, to protect us, to refine us. God has given us his word for this end, and it is sufficient. Brothers and sisters, are you zealous for the worship of the Lord? Are you zealous for his house? Do you prepare your hearts for the Sunday gathering by reading the text, by listening to the playlist, by praying on the morning of in anticipation? Do you try to as best as you can free yourself from distraction by not being on your phones or doing other things? Do you come in with a sense of casualness or reverence that we have come to gather in the presence of God, the one who comes to his holy temple to refine his people? We see Jesus sees the temple turned into a place of trade. Where there should have been zeal, there is glory for greed, but more broadly than that, there is disordered worship. This kind of casual arrogance that says, I can approach God as I want. Jesus reacts as is fitting for Israel's error and is fitting for who he is. He is God the Son. We see that Jesus, as God, cares about how we worship, and Jesus, as God, cares about where we worship. Jesus cares about where we worship. We come to our second point. God cares about where we worship. Now, I say where, just to be a little provocative. In the New Covenant, of course, um, the where is really a who. It's Jesus Christ by the power of spirit. Yes, we gather as a church, but as we'll see later in John chapter four, we worship not on a mountain, rather we worship in spirit and truth. The spirit who unites us to Christ makes us part of the temple and we worship in truth. Again, God cares about the how. What's important to see here in this kind of where section is that Jesus is going to fulfill and replace the temple. He becomes the where and the who of worship. Verse 18, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Now think about it. This is like a pretty wild event. Jesus walks into the temple's outer courtyard. He doesn't say a word. He gives no word of warning. He creates a whip somehow. I don't know, maybe from water. Again, without warning, he drives everyone out. And then at the end, it seems he tells them, you're turning my father's house into a house of business. People are so caught off guard. It doesn't even seem that the temple police are trying to stop him. They are, everyone is thinking, who is this guy? Like, who does this guy think that he is? But think about it. If you owned, you know, a restaurant or something and someone came in, they said, we got to shut you down. You know, you're not meeting code. You would say, you would be thinking, okay, I want to see a badge. Like, I need some papers. I'm not just listening to someone coming off the street. So we can understand their question, I think, on one level. But in another level, it's wrong-headed. 
It's because more important than the question of authority, which is important, is the question of accuracy. You see, Jesus had poked on their sin and they don't like the way it feels. Rather than responding with a question, they should have responded with repentance. Like you're right, we have profaned the Passover. This celebration of God delivering us up out of slavery, up out of the guilt of our sin, we have responded by sinning ourselves. We have turned the temple into a place of trade. You're right, we have not been humble before the presence of God. We have been haughty. We have sinned in his presence. We have approached him like he belongs to us when we, in fact, belong to him. I think there's an important lesson for us here is that when someone is confronting us about sin, we should listen. You might think they're wrong. You might not even know them well. You might think, I don't even know this member very well, and here they are calling me out on some sin I don't even think I've committed. In humility, we ought to hear brothers and sisters out, especially as they're approaching us with God's word, which is both accurate and authoritative. Ask God for humility, ask God for wisdom, ask God for a spirit of contrition if what they're saying is true. Okay, we should be willing to hear when we're being rebuked. The Jews, on the other hand, they're not concerned about the content of Jesus' message. They just want to know who's doing the talking. Okay, you've come in, you've done this, give us a sign. We need, we need some kind of proof that we should listen to you. What sign will you show us for doing these things? Now, you all will recall that the book of John, the first half of it, it's set up as a book of signs. There are seven signs. John has done this because he's eager to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. So these signs are intended to produce, or to foster in us, rather, faith. They display the glory of Christ that we might believe in him. And you're probably thinking, this is his chance. He's at the temple. Not only is he at the temple, it's at Passover. Passover week, everyone's there. Like, show them you're the God-man. Give them the one sign to rule them all. Okay, instead, he gives them a kind of cryptic response. Verse 19, if you look at the text, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days. Jesus tells them, almost gives them an invitation, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, we know that he's talking about his body. They don't have the luxury of verse 21. But even if they took Jesus at kind of face value, if they were so eager to find out, is this God visiting his temple, as we saw in Malachi chapter 3, if they would have destroyed the temple, Jesus could have restored it in three days. It would not have been difficult for him. But it would not have led to belief. You see, Jesus will do the more difficult thing. He'll raise his own body, as we'll see in a second, the true temple. He'll raise it from the grave after they kill him. And yet, it will not lead to belief. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells us, or tells his followers, something interesting as they're demanding signs from him. He says basically that even if he were to ascend to where he was before and they watched it happen, it wouldn't be enough. Like there's no sign threshold that's going to create faith in a dead heart. He says right after that in verse 63 of chapter 6 that the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You see, the flesh does not understand spiritual things. Paul tells us, 1 
Corinthians 2. The flesh cannot submit to the things of God, Romans chapter 8. They want a sign, but there's no sign that Jesus can give them that will cause them to believe. This is why in Mark chapter 8, Jesus, in deep sadness, after he's being asked for a sign, he says, this generation asks for a sign but won't be given one. They're not asking for, they're not asking in faith. And in fact, their lack of repentance for their sin in the temple demonstrates that. They don't really care. And, and, Jesus, I think, has already given them a sign. It's a sign of sorts, at least. If you look down at verse 23, it says, While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. What are these signs that he was doing Passover week? I think this is it, him cleansing the temple. If you have your service guides, I'll encourage you to turn back to page 8, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus, I think, has already given them sign enough in his actions of cleansing the temple. You see there in verse 1, see, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way. Malachi chapter 4 tells us this is John the Baptist. We saw in John chapter 1 that John comes in the spirit of Elijah, right? He flattens the mountain waves, which means he's flattening the hearts of God's people, preparing them for the visitation of God. That has already happened. The messenger has come. Okay, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger comes and God himself visits the temple. The problem is most of Israel was not seeking him. He goes on. What does he do in the temple? Verse 3, it says, He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi... The Levites, they were responsible for the temple and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. This is all the sign that they need. God himself has visited. He has come after his messenger. He has cleansed the temple that worship might be offered to him in righteousness. And yet they miss it. Right? They miss the messenger in the wilderness. They miss God himself in the temple. So Jesus tells them, he offers them up another sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now verse 21, John kind of breaks down fourth gospel wall for us again. He tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, what gives Jesus the authority to cleanse or to clear out the stone temple is that he's the real temple. He's not a mere teacher or prophet or priest. He is God himself in their midst. Notice how Jesus describes the temple in verse 16. He calls it my father's house. He doesn't call it God's house. He doesn't even call it our father's house. He says my father's house. I think this language comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I mentioned this last time. God makes a covenant with David. David's greater son will build a house for God. God will be the son of David. God will be his father. They will have a father-son relationship. Jesus is declaring that he is the messianic king. And as John has showed us, that he is the eternally begotten son of the father. He's not your ordinary man. Now, no one, I don't think, has even caught this because they're so in shock of what's happening. 
In John 5, Jesus will describe God as his father again. The Jews will hear that he's making himself to be equal to God, and then they'll try all the more to kill him. Okay, this is my father's house. Implication, this is my house. I've referenced Isaiah chapter 6 earlier. Later in the book of John, John tells us that the glory that Isaiah saw in the temple was the glory of Jesus. This is my father's house. This is my house. You see, the stone temple was just a symbol. It was a type. The reality has dawned in their midst. Jesus Christ is God become man. This is his father's house. You'll recall John's words in the prologue. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, that is, he tabernacled among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. The word, the eternal word of God, the means by which God turned outward and created the world, he has become flesh. He has become the temple in the midst of God's people. He has visited God's people and made himself accessible. To see his glory is to see the glory of God. To behold the face of Jesus is to see the Father. To be with him is to be at the temple. And so Jesus has the authority over the temple because he is the temple. Not just that, he is the fulfillment of the temple. Think about what John has been eager to show us in these first couple chapters. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, there is no need to bring your money to the tables this morning. God himself has paid the penalty with the precious blood of his son. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is, as John the Baptist told us, the one who the Spirit rests on. It rests on him without measure. It's as Paul says in Colossians 1, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, Jacob's stairway. He is where heaven and earth meet. It is on him that the angels of God ascend and descend. To look upon him to see his glory is to see the glory of God. Jesus is the temple. His body now is the new temple. For those of us who are indwelt by the Spirit and united to Christ, we become a part of that temple. That's why we could even accurately say, I think that this is the house of the Lord. We have gathered in the presence of our God. And Jesus in his temple... The temple was destroyed, he was killed, and three days later, he rose from the grave. If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, we want you to understand who Jesus really is. He is God become man, become lamb, meaning that God himself has died on our behalf for our sins as he hung on the tree. And his resurrection is the great sign of his identity. It shows us that he was innocent, though he was treated guilty on behalf of his people. It shows us that he is the God-man, that he has power even over the grave. It couldn't hold him. It shows us that he has dealt with our sins and their consequence, the curse. It shows us that Jesus Christ in the newness of his life offers us life eternal. If you're not a Christian, if you've not believed in Jesus, we would implore you this morning to trust upon him and him alone for your salvation. You can receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life by simply believing in Jesus today. And Christian, we should, as we hear this account, we should believe in Christ and we should believe his word. 
Look at verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus has made. Jesus had made. So John's doing the same thing again. He's kind of breaking our fourth gospel wall. He's explaining. It was after the resurrection, after the indwelling of the Spirit, John 14, that they came to understand that this statement was about Jesus' resurrection. Okay? Again, they did not understand what was going on at the temple. <laughs> this is an encouragement, I think, for us, as it takes time for us to understand the things of God. They, I promise you, were confused. They were just at this wedding. Jesus turned water into wine. You know, they're like, yeah, we're with, we're with him, you know. <laughs> Turn the water into wine, no big deal. And then they go to Passover, they're probably thinking, this is it. Like, we're rolling in with the Messiah. Well, next thing they know, Jesus has brandished a whip. He's, he's kicking everybody out. You know, they had no idea what was going on. Peter probably just bought a few doves. They're flying away now. <laughs> but John tells us after his resurrection from the dead and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they were reminded of things that Jesus did and said. And notice this is important. It says they believed two things. They believed scripture and they believed the statements that Jesus made. You see, they were reading their Bibles through the lens of its fulfillment, which is Christ, and they understood that it was about him. They understood that the priesthood pointed to him, that the sacrifices pointed to him, that the temple pointed to him. They read and understood and believed both scripture and the things that Jesus said. We see in the word both accuracy and authority. They were reading the word and realizing that it is about the word of God. This is, I think, a wonderful reminder to us that Scripture, the whole of Scripture, teaches us the words of Christ. Not just the Gospels, the whole of the Bible. If you want to understand Jesus better, you should read your Bible, your entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The whole of it is about the triune God's work to save us in Christ. Don't ever let somebody tell you that if you want more Jesus, you need less Bible. People say it, it's a lie. We believe in the words of Christ. We believe in the words of Scripture. It is how we come to know Christ. And I would say this, if you've been reading your Bible, praise God, continue to do so. If you've already fallen off your 2022, you know, Leviticus, whatever it was, <laughs> you made it to February, that's okay. We'll just say pick up your Bible, today's reading, keep reading. It is in the Scripture that we come face to face with Jesus. He speaks to us. It's not just a collection of old words. God himself speaks to us through his son today by his scripture. This is true in our private devotion. It's true in our public worship. This is why, this is why our gathering is centered around the word of God. Jesus cares about how we worship. He cares about where we worship. Right? He is it. And then we'll wrap up these last few verses quickly, mostly because I'm not totally sure what they mean. Beginning in verse 23, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So the text is saying that there's some people trusted in Jesus but basically, he would not trust himself to them. Why? He knew them all. How? Verse 25, he knows what's in man. Most commentators, at least the ones that I was referencing, they seem to agree that this is not real 
belief. It's like a spurious faith. So you might think of the parable of the sower as an example. There's seed that falls upon different, um, different ground that produces different type of fruit. There's an initial profession or experience, but it's not genuine saving faith. And the reason why, and I think this is probably right, is because Jesus does not entrust himself to any of them because he sees what's inside them. But Jesus, in a sense, entrusts himself to his followers, right? He called them. He named them. He stayed with them. He ate with them. He gives, he gives them the right to become children of God. He gives them his spirit. But here Jesus looks inside them and I think is seeing that there's not genuine saving faith. What strikes me again here, just as we're kind of we're struck at the end of uh, the previous account in John chapter 2 where Jesus turns water into wine. There, Jesus performed a sign. People knew about it, at least the servants did, but the only people it seemed who believed were the disciples. Jesus here, again, purifies the temple in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. Who is it that understands Psalm 96? Who believes the words of his and of scripture? It seems only the disciples, perhaps a few others. It is as John told us, in his prologue, that though he created the world, the world didn't recognize him. Though he came to his people, they rejected him. But to those who do receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. John gives us Jesus as he is in his word to produce faith in us, that we would look upon him, that we would worship him as he is the true and only God-man. So we Worship, those of us especially, we are children of God. It is fitting, it is right that we respond to God in worship. How, as he is revealed in his word, he is worthy of dictating how we respond to him. I pray that that would be enough for us. Let's pray.